Okay, bring it up. Is it the manual or? I think it's just turn it off. <laughs> turn it off. The middle button. Have you guys started um, endocrine for pathway yet or no? Yes. You did? Awesome. What, have you covered diabetes or no? No? At all? So you haven't covered diabetes anywhere? At all? But it's not diabetes? Alright. Alright, so then we'll spend a little bit of time on the actual definition. So diabetes is... Um, there's two main types of diabetes, and we're going to go over this more when we get to it in medicine. Um, but the two main types is type 1 and type 2. Uh, just grossly, the difference is type 1 is autoimmune. So it has to do with autoimmune destruction of the islet cells of the pancreas. Uh, because it's autoimmune, you're going to have autoimmune antibodies associated to it. And it typically, but not always, presents early in life. So usually, when it's first diagnosed, it's first diagnosed in pediatric patients. Usually, but not always. But for your test uh, questions in the pants, it's usually going to be a peds patient. Uh, type 2 diabetes has more to do with genetic factors, lifestyle factors like diet and lack of exercise, and it's associated more towards that and not autoimmune. This microphone's driving me crazy. I feel like it's... Turn it off. Turn it off. I already have a headache. <laughs> why, why was it because I feel like I turn my head this way and there's no more and I turn this way and it's like loud and I'm just like <laughs> alright so type 2 is going to be more associated to lifestyle factors you guys alright? you guys good? Yeah. Um, so type 2 is more associated to lifestyle factors genetic factors um, and not have anything to do with autoimmune factors. And it typically presents later in life. So patients are going to be 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, etc. Um, before they present with symptoms. Because type 1 is autoimmune and there's destruction of the pancreatic cells, obviously they go from producing normal amounts of insulin to producing no insulin within a relatively short period of time. And because of that, the onset of symptoms is usually very aggressive. So the patients are going to present usually in like a diabetic ketoacidosis. They're going to present very acutely ill, sick, um, as opposed to type 2, which usually is much more gradual onset. The patients follow up routinely with their physicians. They'll be able to see their glucose levels creeping up. They'll be able to see their A1C creeping up, and they'll be able to then prevent the progression. Um, so with type 1, because you have this quick destruction of the islet cells and no insulin production, the treatment's going to be what? Insulin, right? So a lot, of the, a lot of the medications for diabetes are centered around increasing sensitivity to insulin, but you can increase the sensitivity to insulin all you want. If there's no insulin, you're done. And you can try to make the pancreas stimulate to produce more insulin, but if the cells are gone, then you're not really stimulating anything, so it doesn't work. So type 1 diabetes, pretty much the only medication you're treating with is going to be insulin. Uh, and therefore, we're going to be talking mainly about treatment of type 2 diabetes. Question? I'm sorry, I kind of zoned out something a little bit. Awesome. 
No, no. I like your honesty. No, so autoimmune, they go from having regularly functioning pancreatic cells to non-functioning quick. Okay. So when you see them, they're usually super sick. Like a lot of times I'll be uh, in the urgent care and like a little kid will come in and the mom's like, oh, I don't know, they're drinking a lot of water, they look sick, they look dehydrated, they're like a little bit confused and you're talking to them and they're like a little lethargic and then you're like, oh, what's going on with them? Do they have a fever? You're doing all this stuff and then you just check their glucose and it's like 500 or the machine doesn't even read it. And then that's the first time they find out is the kids like in DKA and they're like comatose or about to be. So that's type one. Type two usually it's the obese, 30-year-old, and 30 is just a random number. It's been presenting earlier and earlier in life now, but, um, you know, 30-year-old with poor lifestyle habits, no exercise, that's usually how they present on, on test questions. But it could be anybody, right? They don't have to be obese. They don't have to be poor diet. It can happen to anybody. It could be genetic as well. There's a lot of genetic factors that, that play into it. Um, Thank you. No, no problem. So type 2 diabetes is uh, more associated to lifestyle. So... The initial treatment is going to be related around lifestyle modifications. Um, I'm not going to test you guys on those modifications, and we'll talk more about them in medicine, but obviously it has to do with diet, exercise, um, and then the other treatment is going to be centered around all the different mechanisms associated to glucose. So there's medications that are going to stop the absorption of glucose so that you don't absorb the glucose. There's medications that are going to stimulate the pancreas to produce more insulin, which is going to lower glucose levels. There's going to be um, medications that increase sensitivity to the insulin already in the body. And those are the main mechanisms in which all these medications work, and we're going to go over that individually. Signs and symptoms for type 1 and type 2 are very similar. Um, polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia are the three symptoms that they're frequently going to give you on vignettes and test questions. Uh, blurred vision is more of an advanced stage. Um, and I will tell you that, too, usually... Type 1 will present more aggressively, but usually type 2 will present more with those chronic complications because if you find out you're diabetic very young and you're on insulin therapy, you control it since you're young. If you've been dealing with type 2 diabetes for several years and didn't really notice it and don't go to your doctor often, a lot of times they'll start presenting with some kind of microvascular complications, like they're like, oh, my vision's bad, I'm going to go get evaluated, and they find out they're diabetic, yada, yada, yada. So... Type 1 usually presents more aggressively earlier in life, but type 2 usually presents with micro and macular vascular complications later in life. So the complications are, um, they usually break them down into microvascular, which is the small vessels, and macrovascular, which is the larger ones. And the most common type of complications are retinopathy, neuropathy, and um, nephropathy. So kidney damage, eye damage, and nerve damage in general. It can be like peripheral, like lower extremity paresthesias that patients get. It can be in the GI tract, which could be like uh, the gastroparesis that we had talked about previously. And then macrovascular is things like heart attacks, strokes, and peripheral vascular disease. The goals for treatment, so diabetes is really annoying when it comes to treatment because there's different guidelines. There's the, nice, there's the ADA guidelines and then there's the ACE guidelines. So the ADA guidelines want you to have a hemoglobin A1C less than 7, and the ACE want you to have it less than 6.5. So which one do you need to know? And the answer is both. Um, they're both important. Uh, which one do you answer on the pants? Uh, that's tough. 
I will tell you that the, the reason that 7% is kind of the goal that a lot of people go with is because you don't want patients to be hyperglycemic, but in the short term, them being hypoglycemic can cause a lot worse short-term effects. So they tend to err on the side of preventing hypoglycemic crisis. So for my test, and the way I would recommend you approach this on the pants, if the patients are young and they're healthy and they don't have a whole lot of other risk factors or risk factors for hypoglycemia, then your goal should be less than or equal to 6.5 on the A1C. If your patients are older or if they have high risk of developing hypoglycemia or hypoglycemic complications, then you want to go with less than 7% because they have a higher risk of hypoglycemia. And if you approach it that way, then you'll be fine on my test and you will, should be fine on your pants question. They don't usually test you on um, pre- and postprandial glucose levels for control because A1C is the most widely used measurement for your, your goals. Uh, it's different for diagnosis. For diagnosis, they do use them, but for treatment, usually they'll go by the A1C because you're not really, you're assessing treatment on a three-month basis usually, so they'll usually redraw an A1C and they don't really rely on the glucose, um, but they do have you monitor it at home, so that's helpful as well. But the A1C is a, a really good measure. Yeah? Not necessarily. There's there's a lot of different complications associated with diabetes. So with diabetes, you have a lot of glucose in the. So even though you have a lot of glucose in diabetes, your body is essentially starving because the part of the function of insulin. We always think about, oh, just bring down the blood sugar, but insulin actually is kind of like the, the gateway, the key for the glucose to get into your body's cells. So if you're not having glucose in your body's cells, then the cells of your body are technically starving. So even though you have all this glucose, your body has no access to it. So it starts relying upon other means to produce um, energy. So usually that goes around fat metabolism. And then it starts metabolizing fat, which produces ketones. And then these patients, that's why they end up having DKA and things like that. Over time, these um, also having high levels of glucose causes an inflammatory response in the blood vessels, um, causes increased risk for infections because obviously bacteria will be able to pro proliferate a lot more while you have high levels of glucose in your body. So they'll get yeast infections, uh, fungal infections in the skin, urinary tract infections, and then they'll have poor healing of infections as well. And then over time, Usually the, the smaller vessels are affected first. That's why they have nephropathy, um, peripheral neuropathy, and uh, retinovascular complications. So when it hurts, like, for example, the, the retina, it's not actually like putting up the retina, it's like physiological. It's, it's preventing blood flow, which is causing ischemia to the tissues of the retina, which is not allowing it to function properly. Yeah. It's all vascular, vascular supply, not like physical injury. Um, so that's pretty much it for just like a quick summary of diabetes, um, which I think gives you everything you need to know for us to go over the pharma. So more important than pretty much anything else we've covered so far, uh, knowing the names of the classes of medications is super important because there's a lot of them that sound similar. So I tried to come up with ways to help you guys remember them, um, but it's still it can be pretty hard. Metformin is just metformin, so you don't need to remember anything else. The class of medications that it's in is called the biguanide class. So knowing it as a biguanide and knowing it as metformin is really all you need, and it's the only medication in the class. 
Um, we're going to go over them individually, but it works by increasing sensitivity um, in the body to insulin, and it also decreases the conversion um, by the liver to create glucose in the body. So it decreases gluconeogenesis. So those are the main mechanisms. It has other ones that decreases absorption of glucose as well, but those are the main ones. So it's decreasing gluconeogenesis and, decre and increasing insulin sensitivity is the main actions. Um, sulfonylureas are an important class as well, and these medications are commonly used. And when they ask you about these medications, they're usually asking you about complications because they have a bunch of complications. Um, but they're used all the time because they're cheap. So insulin is super expensive, and a lot of these medications we're going to talk about are super expensive. But sulfonylureas are super cheap, so a lot of patients are taking them. But they're associated with a lot of adverse effects, like hypoglycemia. Um, it's the main one. It has a very high risk for hypoglycemia. So we're going to talk about that. Um, these medications end in the, um, in the suffix "-ide", uh, but there's a lot of other medications that end in "-ide", as well. So we'll, we'll talk about how to not confuse them, okay? Uh, Thiazolinibidiones, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, those they refer to typically as the glitazones. Um, and I like to remember that because in, if you think of thiazo um, and glitazone, they both have that ZO. And there's no other class or medication that has that. So the thiazos are the glitazones. And that's helped me remember those all the time. Um, the meglintides, they don't typically test you on those and they're not prescribed very often. Um, but the name has the same kind of sound to it for the medications. So they have glenide and they're meglitinide, so they sound exactly the same. It's not too hard. The alpha um, glucosidase inhibitors. So this one's pretty easy. So it's a glucosidase is an enzyme that helps break down carbohydrates in the GI tract. So this drug inhibits the breakdown of glucose in the GI tract. So you literally just don't absorb the glucose. So we talked about other medications that do similar things, um, you know, in the GI tract um, several times. So what do you think would be a side effect of this medication? Hypoglycemia? Not too much. That's not a big one. Diarrhea, abdominal pain, bloating, flatulence. Yeah, exactly. So it's pretty much creating a lot of insoluble content within the GI tract and it's gonna cause a lot of GI-associated side effects, and because of that, they're not well tolerated, because of that, they're not often used, and because of that, besides that side effect, they're not often tested. So the main thing you need to know about them are their side effects. Um, and if you think of the name, the most common medication they'll test you on is A-carbose. Um, A is without, carbose is carbohydrates, so without carbohydrates, tells you everything you need to know about the medication. You don't absorb carbohydrates, and because you don't absorb them, you got a bunch of GI side effects. Uh, then you have the DPP-4 inhibitors. Um, so when you think about DPP-4s, I want you to tie them in with the GLP-1 analogs, which is, uh, it's not on this chart because it's on the bottom chart because it's injectable. It's not an oral medication. So GLP-1s and DPP-4s are part of what's called the incretin effect. The incretin effect, without getting too complicated, is the body's mechanism for stimulating uh, the secretion of insulin whenever you consume oral variants of glucose or carbohydrates. And GLP-1 stimulates the release of insulin, and DPP-4 breaks down GLP-1. So these medications work in very similar channels. If you give the patient a GLP-1, you're going to stimulate insulin secretion. If you give them a DPP-4, you're inhibiting their body's degradation of their own endogenous 
GLP-1. So at the end of the day, they're both working on GLP-1. You're either giving it to them or you're stopping the body from breaking it down. So obviously, you would never give those two medications together. Okay? Um, so when I think of GLP, uh, GLP stands for glucon-like peptide, but I like to think of it as gooey laundry pods. And that's because all the medications that are in the class end in the word tide. All right? So the way I never forget GOPs is gooey laundry pods and all the medications in the class end in tide, which is very different from the sulfonylureas which end in just ide. All right? So if you see ide, don't focus on the ide. Uh, if, if you see tide, it's a GLP. If you see ide, then it's a sulfonylurea. All right? So hopefully that helps you guys remember those. Um, don't give them together. The medications work really, really well, and they're very notable because they cause weight loss, um, especially the GLP-1s. So the GLP-1s are very helpful for patients that are also overweight, um, and they're actually used also for obesity, for monotherapy for patients who have obesity and indications for medication use. Um, side effects of these medications that are big are um, the risk of pancreatitis. So they, they carry a risk of um, pancreatitis, which is very big, and then also um, patients who have a history of medullary thyroid carcinoma, they like to test on that, it increases the risk of medullary thyroid carcinoma. So family history of the disease can be an issue as well. Uh, the, yeah. Medullary thyroid carcinoma. Yeah. Medullary thyroid carcinoma and uh, pancreatitis, those are the big side effects that they like to test on with those two. Uh, and we're going to talk about these individually. I'm just going over it on the chart so you guys can kind of have an idea. The SGLT2s, um, those work in the kidneys. And the way they work is they literally stop your body from reabsorbing glucose in the renal system. So all the glucose goes out in the pee. So these medications end in the word flozen. And I like to think about it as the SGLT2s make your glucose flows in the toilet. So you remember that? It'll really help you know, one, the mechanism of action of the drug, and two, remember the name of all the drugs in the class. So the SGLT2s make the glucose flows in the toilet. All right, medications are awesome because specifically empagliflozin in that drug class is really good for patients with heart disease, and it's shown to decrease mortality in patients who have a history of cardiovascular disease. So they're very well known for that. Um, they don't have a whole lot of adverse effects, but if you're pumping a whole bunch of glucose in the urine, what do you think would be a big side effect? What is it? There's a kidney. No, if you're pumping out glucose in the urine, what do you think would be a side effect? Yeah, of having a lot of glucose in the urine. Kidney problems? Like what? Not necessarily. Not renal failure, but infections. Infections, all right? So you have a lot of glucose, so UTIs, yeah. So bacterial infections are a huge problem with SGLT2 inhibitors. And obviously, if they work in the kidneys and your patient has poor kidney function, it's not going to work very well, right? So things to remember about the medication. Um, Cholesterolavam is not uh, really a diabetes medication per se. It's more in um, the cholesterol class. Um, and the dopamine agonists are not typically used, and we're not going to test you guys on those. Um, and that covers pretty much all the medications that we're going to talk about today. So we'll talk about them individually now. So metformin, you guys don't need to know any dosing, of course, for the test. Um, so don't worry about the dosing, but the dosing's here because you will see these often. 
Um, and regardless of what setting you practice in, you may or may not use these medications at some point or another. So we already talked about the biguanides, which is metformin, and the mechanism of action of this medication is super important, and you're going to get tested on it all the time. It decreases hepatic uh, glucose production, and it increases sensitivity to the insulin that's currently present in the body. Uh, pretty much every single patient who's diabetic uh, with type 2 diabetes is going to be started on metformin. Um, the big exceptions to this are patients who don't tolerate the medication or patients who have kidney issues. So it's the first-line medication, and it's pretty much where you're starting everybody as a first-line treatment. Um, it's also used in combination, so they combine this medication with several other medications. We'll talk about that later. Um, it promotes weight loss. It promotes uh, decreased triglycerides, and it improves the patient's HDL levels. So it has other uh, advantages as well. So there's a low risk for hypoglycemia with metformin. So when it says down arrow hypoglycemia, it's, and it has an advantage. It's a low risk for hypoglycemia. Um, it causes weight loss. And those are two things that you're going to see as a common theme. So every medication you want to know, does it cause weight gain or weight loss? And does it have a risk of hypoglycemia or no risk of hypoglycemia? Because they love to test on those two uh, characteristics. So always, always, always for every medication know that. And there's some charts later that are going to help you with that. So disadvantages is that there's GI side effects. Um, so a lot of patients complain of like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, GI, uh, abdominal pain while they're on the medication. That's expected and it happens to most patients and usually within a few weeks of treatment, that, those side effects go away. So if the patient complains of those side effects, you don't stop the medication, you keep them on it, you monitor them, and if they don't subside within the first like 30 days, then you can cha consider changing the medication. But it's not, a, it's, it's not unheard of and it usually resolves. The biggest side effects that you need to know of is lactic acidosis. Um, so patients who have who use metformin have a risk of lactic acidosis, and that risk increases with several factors, and those factors include patients who have a history of kidney issues or patients who are undergoing treatment with any kind of iodinated studies. So if the patient is going to get a study that involves iodine, they should stop metformin. Um, and after they have the study and they resume metformin, they should have their renal function checked periodically to ensure that they're not having any um, renal issues. B12 deficiency is another side effect, not commonly tested, um, and I wouldn't worry too much about it for, for my exam. So indicate uh, contraindications and precautions, so patients who have a creatinine greater than um, 1.5, uh, patients with hepatic impairment, and mainly iodinated contrast medium. Um, CHF isn't necessarily a absolute contraindication, but it is a caution. Um, but iodinated contrast media, you do want to discontinue prior to use. So there's a lot of information on the on the um, on the right side where it tells you to obtain uh, their GFR before starting the medication. So that is important to know that before you start the patient some medication, you want to get baseline measurements of their GFR. Um, it's contraindicated if it's less than 30, not recommended in the range of 30 to 45, um, and then once you start them on this medication, you're going to do the GFR annually um, to assess for any changes in their renal function. Obviously, if your patient's at high risk or if they're kind of borderline, you want to check it more often, but um, there's not really specific guidance on that. 
So times that you would discontinue metformin is if they're going to have an iodinated contrast study, um, if they have a history of liver disease, alcoholism, or heart failure. Um, again, iodinated contrast studies. And then after you do any kind of imaging study, you want to check their GFR again 48 hours after the imaging study um, before you restart the medication. So discontinue before and check the GFR 48 hours after prior to initiating the medication again. Discontinue 24 yeah. hours before or discontinue that day? 24 hours is appropriate. Yes, there's an adjusted, there's an African American adjusted calculator for GFR. There's. But when, and when you're doing the. Um, I didn't see a different, a variation and difference. Like they didn't specify in the text if there was a different GFR for African American patients that you would. So I think it's when you actually do the calculation, it factors that into the calculator, but the end result number doesn't change with the indications for the medication. So it's not like medication, African-American, this GFR, it's when you do the calculations. They'll tell you, like a lot of times on labs, it'll actually give you that, the, the, yeah, it'll give you that, the variation on the lab. Um, so things that will increase your risk of lactic acidosis is uh, renal dysfunction, which you need to know, advanced age, which you definitely need to know. Um, I'm not going to test you guys specifically on all the drug interactions for this medication. There's quite a few of them. Um, so I'm not going to test you guys on those, and it's not commonly tested for you guys either. Uh, but a lot of medications that work through um, renal elimination are going to cause this as well. Patients who have an acute, so, and it is important to know this, and not necessarily highly tested, but important to know, um, patients who have any kind of states of dehydration, sepsis, um, COPD, a lot of chronic conditions can increase the risk of patients developing um, lactic acidosis. So you need to monitor these patients very closely while on the medication. Do you guys have any questions on metformin? Right. So sulfonylureas, um, these are the ones that end in IDE. Um, these medications are tested a lot because of their side effects. So usually when they test you, it's not about who you're going to give them to, it's about who you're not going to give them to. Uh, so it's very important to keep that in mind. So the reason you give this medication a lot and you're going to see it in use a lot is because it's affordable. Um, but the problem with the medication is that it has a bunch of side effects and the main ones that they test you on is hypoglycemia and weight gain. So patients who have a history of heart disease, patients who are obese, patients who are elderly, or patients who are on multiple oral um, hypoglycemic agents have a very high risk of hypoglycemia with this medication. So. Um, very, very important to keep those in, in mind because they will be tested. Um, glipizide, if you're giving it to a patient with renal impairment or that are elderly, is the preferred agent. So anytime you have one medication, and you're going to see that multiple times throughout uh, endo, uh, for diabetes specifically, there's going to be specific agents within the drug class that are better for certain reasons, and you need to know that because they're going to test you on that. And then this is one of those instances. Right. Diabetes, when elderly or renal impaired and you have to give a sulfonylurea, you prefer glipizide. I'm not going to test you guys on how to take sulfonylureas because you're probably not going to get tested on that. It's not commonly tested, um, but it will be taken before meals, 30 minutes before meals. Any questions on sulfonylureas? 
All right, so the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, we talked about that. Um, glucosidase is an enzyme responsible for the breakdown of carbohydrates. They don't usually test you on um, miglitol. They usually test you on acarbose. I've never seen a question on miglitol in any question bank I've ever done, but I have seen acarbose a bunch of times. Um, and we talked about acarbose. A is without, carbose is carbohydrates. So it's going to stop the absorption of carbohydrates in the GI tract. And because of that, you're going to have a bunch of undigested carbohydrates in your GI system. You're going to get bloating, flatulence, abdominal pain, diarrhea, nausea. Nobody likes using the medication. Barely anybody uses the medication. And they're only going to test you on those GI side effects for the most part. Not used as monotherapy or first line, a.k.a. not used. Um, adverse effects, all the GI symptoms we talked about. Uh, contraindicated in other conditions that have really bad GI side effects. So if a patient has IBD or IBS or any kind of GI condition that's going to give them bloating, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, you don't give them another medication that's going to do the exact same thing. Not well accepted in the U.S. due to GI side effects. Perfect. Um, so the thiazolidinidiones, TZDs, as everyone um, likes to call them. So the only reason I want you guys to remember the name is because it has the thiazo in it. And that's going to help you remember the name of the medications. It's the only one that has the glitazone with the ZO in it in the same medication class with the thiazos. So that should be very useful in helping you guys remember it. But other people remember them as the glitazones. It's a little bit harder for me because it doesn't click as well. Um, but these medications work by increasing sensitivity to insulin um, and decreasing insulin resistance. A little bit similar to metformin, which we talked about, but it doesn't have the uh, effects on gluconeogenesis like metformin does. These medications are also usually tested because of their side effects um, and not so much about their indications. So the big side effects of this medication is weight loss. I'm sorry, weight gain. Weight loss would not be a problem. <laughs> it's weight gain. Um, and the huge one is uh, the weight gain is usually caused by fluid retention. So super, super, super contraindicated in patients with CHF. Right? So weight gain due to um, fluid retention. And then also uh, risk of bone fractures. Right? So loss of bone mineral density. Those are kind of the unique, uh, the unique effects of it. Contraindications, CHF. That's the big one. Also hepatic impairment. But CHF is a big one. It does decrease the concentrations of oral estrogens, so you have to be careful in patients who are using birth control. Um, they don't test that. I've never been tested on that concept, but it's there. But the big things to look for is weight gain, patients with CHF, um, and they're typically going to test you guys on this because of that, those side effects. Rosiglitazone, um, specifically, it was at one point removed from the market because, they, um, because there was an increased risk of cardiovascular death. But the medication's now back. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's not really. I mean, anytime you have a medication that was removed from the market for something, it usually doesn't stop prescribed. So, pioglitazone, when you see these medications used, which you don't see them used super often, um, is the one you're going to see most often. Um, specifically, pioglitazone carries a risk of bladder cancer. So, know about the the concern and the restricted use in the past 
for rosiglitazone based on cardiovascular death and know about pioglitazone and the association of bladder cancer, specifically for those medications. So don't forget that because it, it will be tested on my exam and it will be tested likely on other exams. There's another medication we talked about with potential risk for cancer. Which one of those? You guys remember? No? Which one? There was another medication we talked about that increased risk of cancer. Do you guys remember what medication we were talking about? Which one? No, but it sounds like it. So the GLP-1s with medullary thyroid carcinoma. Okay, the GLP-1s. Okay, so GLP-1s, medullary thyroid carcinoma. You guys have any questions on TCDs? So specifically, rosiglitazone, know about its, I, I mean, the reason they reinstated it was because they did more studies and found that there wasn't really a correlation, but still know about it because they may or may not ask you about it. Cardiovascular death for rosiglitazone and for pioglitazone, bladder cancer. For both of them, for both of them, contraindications in CHF, causes weight gain, fractures, edema, fluid retention, that's for both of them. So if you see it on the left column, it's both. If you see it on that individualized on the right, that's specific to those medications. So you would tell your patient to find another contraceptive method? Or, or you just wouldn't use the medication. Or you just <laughs> Which is usually the case. Usually not, yeah. Usually it's not, it's not a commonly prescribed medication. The most common medications you're going to see for diabetes that you're going to see all the time are sulfonylureas. You're going to see metformin, and you're going to see the GLPs, which is like xanatide, liraglutide, and you're going to see the SGLT2s, um, which is the flozins. And the reason is because they have a lot. So most patients who are diabetic have a bunch of other comorbidities, and those medications have benefits with the other comorbidities. So GLP1s and SGLT2s are really good cardiovascular medications. So most patients are on them, but they're also super expensive. So because of that, a lot of those patients are instead on like sulfonylureas and other medications that are more affordable. But the TZDs, you don't hear about them very often, um, and they ask you about them because of the complications and why you don't prescribe them. The same thing with the medication, the alpha glucosidase inhibitors, they're going to ask you about why you don't give them, not necessarily why you do. So the maglitinides are the medications that end in glinide, which sounds just like the name. Um, it's going to stimulate secretion from the pancreatic cells. What other medication we talk about that works by stimulating secretion of insulin? No. Well, GLP-1 does indirectly promote insulin secretion. Yes, it does. DPP-4s inhibits the breakdown of GLP-1, so yes, it indirectly... Well, you're, you're not wrong. It indirectly, it indirectly stops GLP-1 from being broken down, which ultimately leads to more insulin secretion. But there's another medication specifically that works by increasing insulin secretion. We talked about metformin. Which one? Metformin does not stimulate insulin secretion. It, in, it decreases hepatic gluconeogenesis and increases insulin sensitivity. Sulfonylurea. So the, the incretin medications, they don't directly work to stimulate, but they you're giving them GOP-1, which then goes and stimulates insulin secretion. DPP-4s stops the breakdown of GOP-1s, which allows for more insulin secretion from your natural GOP-1 
analyze. This is more direct. Right. So phonourea specifically go to the cells and start pumping out um, uh, insulin. The same thing with the magudinides. So a lot of times you're going to hear this word on test questions, insulin secretagogue, which just means medication that helps secrete insulin. And they, you, they like to test mechanism of action a lot, and they'll ask you, like, oh, which one of the following medication works by increasing secretion of insulin? So the main medications that do that, sulfonylureas and the maglinonides. The maglinonides are not commonly used at all and not commonly tested. So the only thing I really need you guys to know is the mechanism of action. Because if they're going to ask you it, it's going to be about what medication stimulates insulin secretion. And directly, that's going to be maglinonides and sulfonylureas. Yes, GLP-1s, if you have more GLP, you're going to secrete more insulin. And if you have, uh, if you give a DPP-4, you're going to stop the breakdown of the patient's own GLP-1. So they're going to, yes, secrete more insulin. But the direct mechanism of action is not stimulating beta cells to secrete insulin. Does everybody get that? No. Who doesn't get that? <laughs> what happened? What's the question? Well, I'll say it again. Okay, so sulfonylureas and maglinides directly stimulate beta cells of the pancreas to secrete insulin. So they are insulin secretagogues. Their mechanism of action is specifically centered around getting those cells to secrete insulin. If you give a patient GLP-1, because of the increase in effect, they will ultimately produce more insulin. So yes, it indirectly is going to increase your insulin levels. So it does work that way. And DPP-4s are the enzyme that inhibits GLP-1. So if you give someone more DPP-4 inhibitors, or if you give it to them as a medication, their own GLP-1 will not be broken down and will help them to create more insulin. Are we good? Yes. Nobody's confused? No? It's okay to be confused. All right. So, incretins. So, we talked about incretins. So incretins are hormones in the gut that help stimulate the secretion of insulin. And those hormones are GLP-1s, which they like to call glucagon-like peptides, and I like to call gooey laundry pots. Um, and then also um, DPP-4 is the hormone that inhibits and degrades GLP-1. So that's the side there. It says GLP-1 is degraded by the enzyme DPP-4. Dipeptidyl peptides. So... These medications are, um, are used a lot because they promote weight loss and because they have cardioprotective benefits. Um, the GLP-1s are administered through subcutaneous injection um, and they're usually preferred over the DPP-4s. Weight loss and works really well um, for cardiovascular benefits does not have a whole lot of significant side effects um, that are common, but it does have some significant side effects that are very concerning, which is pancreatitis and medullary thyroid carcinoma. So those two you need to know. And those two are applicable to GLP-1s and DPP-4s. Can you repeat that? Yeah. Pancreatitis and medullary thyroid carcinoma. But it is on this slide. <laughs> All right, so this is just telling you guys about the incretin effect. Huh? 
next slide is going to actually talk about the agents that work on the incretin effect, which is the GLP-1s and the DPP-4s. So the GLP-1 agonist, um, to remember the class names, think of GLP as GUI laundry pods, and you think of that as TIDE, which is how all of the medications end. Exenatide, liraglutide, um, duaglutide, and semaglutide. All right? Are they both going to be there? Yeah. I don't know. The generic will be there, though. Why you know them by brand names? I know them by brand names. Just do both. That's more work for me, though. Ah, then I gotta look up the brand and the generic, the parentheses. But what if the pants only gives you the generic? They could do either one, but they usually give you both. Wow. Alright, fine, I'll put both. I'll put both. Yeah, I'll put both. Um, so, we kind of already talked about these medications. Guys, settle down. So, they are going to indirectly stimulate um, glucose secretion. Alright? and they're going to decrease hepatic glucose production. All right. We talked about another medication that decreased hepatic glucose production. Which one was that? Metformin. Metformin, Metformin mainly worked by decreasing hepatic gluconeogenesis as well as increasing sensitivity to insulin. Uh, does metformin secrete insulin, cause increased secretion of insulin? All right. What medications do we talk about that do that directly? And Right? So GLP ones, common side effects, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, do not worry about those because every medication does that. Um, concerning side effects, pancreatitis, medullary thyroid carcinoma. Alright? You're gonna see a little chart there. Um, if there's any discrepancies in the chart in the slide, go with the slide. The chart is just there because it has, um, it had the majority thyroid carcinoma and then I just put it in the chart. So, I mean, the, the chart's not really super, um, super important except for, uh, but I have another chart that does this better. Liraglutide um, specifically is preferred in, um, yeah, I'm having a blank here. I think it's preferred, is preferred in patients with cardiovascular issues, but don't write that down because I'm going to confirm it on the other chart, just to be sure. So DPP-4 inhibitors, um, I don't have a special fancy way to remember these. Um, they're the gliptins, so they all end in gliptin, but you're just going to have to remember that the gliptins are DPP-4s. And if you guys think of a cool way to remember that, let me know. So I can put it on my side. Wait, wait, say it again? Do you remember that gliptins all end in gliptin? The DPP-4s, they all end in gliptin. That was very complicated. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I was like, hey, you're going to have me to do math in my mnemonic? I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got to start doing math in my mnemonic? <laughs> Massimini gets me with those two. He's like, oh, Von Reckinghausen has 17 letters, chromosome 7. <laughs> Think of that, that meme with the lady, and she's just like... <laughs> <laughs> Every Saturday. <laughs> Every Saturday. <laughs>
Just like it's easy. You learn it once. That's it. <laughs> oh, instead of open slide. Do that one more time. What was that? <laughs> Dip in what? Slip. Dip and glide. 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 Dip and essentially are the same thing as GOPs because what they're doing is they're stopping the breakdown of your body's incretins of the GOP so it lets your own GOP do its thing so the risks are going to be very similar to GOPs pancreatitis right? so very 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 similar the GOP ones are preferred because uh, while DPP4s don't cause weight gain they're weight neutral GOP ones promote Weight loss. Did I put that on the slide? Yes, I did. Okay, good. So that's super important, right? The weight loss properties. The DPP4s don't have those, um, so they're not as um, preferred. But in patients who you can't give the GLP1s to, you can do a DPP4, and, and they work well also. So we're going to talk about the SGLT2s. So the SGLT2 inhibitors inhibit the SGLT2, and that causes no reabsorption of glucose renally. So your glucose flows in the toilet. If you remember that, you remember the mechanism of action and you remember the name of the medications. And if you remember that too, that there's a bunch of glucose in the urine, you remember the side effect or the adverse effect of increased urinary tract infections. So if you get a vignette with a patient with recurrent UTIs, that may be a symptom of diabetes or if they're on a medication like empagliflozin or canagliflozin or the other flozin, then you can suspect that as part of the reason why they're getting these recurrent UTIs related to a medication side effect. Right? So this is another one that has a specific medication that is preferred and a specific medication that is not preferred. The preferred medication is called empagliflozin. And the reason it is preferred is because they have done studies that show that it has cardiovascular protective benefits which is not necessarily present in all of the other medications in this class. So everybody who you see on these medications is usually on empagliflozin. Um, and the one that you're going to want to avoid using is canagliflozin because it causes a risk of gangrene, amputations, right? And it also carries an increased risk of fracture. It causes loss of bone mineral density. So decreased blood pressure, weight loss, and cardiovascular mortality benefits. You can obviously see why this medication is and at very low risk of hypoglycemia. So you can see why this medication is a very good medication to consider implementing in patients who are diabetic. Um, reasons why you wouldn't use it, it is expensive. Do I have side effects? Oh, yeah. Adverse drug effects, urinary tract infections, fungal infections, and transient increases in LDL. So really the infections is what they're going to test you on. And then for canagliflozin, fractures and amputations and gangrene. All right? 
So the next medications we're going to talk about, what time is it? <coughs> you guys want to take a break? Yeah. I heard a lot of yeses and a couple no's. I want to take a break. <laughs> all right, so, so we covered pretty much all the oral medications, and we covered the GLPs. Oh, we can't need those, huh? And then we covered the GLPs, which was the only injectable medication we've talked about so far. And now we're going to talk about insulin, which is all injectable. All right. So don't worry too much about this slide. Um, this slide is kind of giving you the medications. There's a better slide for this, though. Um, but what I want you to know is that there's a couple different types of insulin. There's basal and bolus. Those are the two big types of insulin. All right, basal and bolus. So basal insulin, just think about that as your baseline. All right, basal baseline insulin that you need to get you through your day. So a lot of times when patients uh, are going to be on insulin, and the patients that are on insulin are patients who are either type 1 diabetic or patients who are type 2 diabetic with very advanced disease or that are unresponsive or cannot take a lot of the oral medications. So type 2 diabetic patients also take insulin. And when you start them on insulin, usually you're going to start them with the basal insulin. And the basal, like we said, it's your baseline insulin. All basal insulins are very long-acting, okay? So very important to know that. And you're going to take them usually about once a day, and then the medication is going to have a duration of about 24 hours before you take the medication again. So a lot of times when you're transitioning a patient from oral medications to um, insulin, you're not necessarily stopping all oral medications and starting insulin. Usually you'll keep them on metformin and then add on a basal insulin. And then if the basal insulin is not enough, you have a lot of options like either increasing the basal insulin or adding a bolus insulin. And a bolus insulin is essentially insulin that you take relative to your meals. So if you're going to have a meal, you take a bolus of insulin prior to your meal. And usually those are not long-acting, they're short-acting. So that insulin in the short term or intermediate term is going to decrease your glucose levels, but it's not going to have a long-term effect. So obviously, if you give somebody a short-term insulin, so like if somebody takes a short-term insulin and doesn't eat, they're going to have a very severe drop short-term of their insulin. So it's very important that it's actually taken with meals and that you don't mess that up. What about the patients that have the sliding scale? So sliding scale for insulin is essentially, so then that's kind of where correction comes in. Sliding scale is usually patients who um, are on some kind of regimen with a basal insulin and a bolus, but they check their, their glucose levels, and depending on how high it is, they administer a certain amount of units. Uh, sliding scale is used sometimes, and sometimes it's not used, um, but we use it a lot in the urgent care. I use it a lot for patients who come in and they're like hyperglycemic, and I want to treat them and send them home. When I dose them, I usually dose them based on a sliding scale. Usually, the providers will assign you a sliding scale. There's many different types of sliding scales. There's like a, a, a low one, a moderate one, and a high one. So depending on the patient, they may be more or less aggressive, depending on their risk of hypoglycemia. From the urgent care, usually I'll start with the low one, which is the safest one. And then depending, for instance, let's say, and I'd have to actually pull up a chart to show you because I don't know this by memory. But if you're, you know, it'll say pretty much like, oh, if the patient's glucose is, you know, 
180 to 200, administer one unit. If it's 200 to 250, administer two units. If it's 250 to 300, administer, and those numbers are not right, but that's the idea. And then they have a, a, a low, or like a low, medium, and high. So following those same measurements, you may administer less or more units. And that's just depending on how strict control the provider wants to put them on. So a lot of times the patient will be like, oh, I'm on a sliding scale, I'm on this sliding scale, and then you'll know how many units to administer. The patient themselves know. So when they're at a certain measurement, they know to administer X amount of units. So that's what a sliding scale is. So some patients are dosed that way. So you said it was a mix, right? Huh? So that's that specifically for a short to intermediate acting Majority. insulin. Yeah, so that patient will be on a basal insulin that they take every day. And then based on their glucose measurements throughout the day, they may add um, an intermediate to rapid acting insulin throughout the day. Yeah. So insulin pumps, so there's, they have now machines that can measure and administer glucose on a daily basis depending on the patient's levels, which are amazing. So these patients will have these little pumps with them. They're not that inconvenient to carry on you. And as the day goes on, it's constantly measuring your glucose levels and administering the insulin to you as the day goes on to maintain a range that's set in through the machine that you've calibrated to the machine. So those are very effective, but obviously very not very affordable to have patients. If everybody could be on insulin pump, that'd be awesome, but that's usually not the case. Um, and then if patients are on the insulin pump, it's important to make sure that it's working, that it's loaded with insulin and those type of things to make sure that the patients are... Is there a specific one that goes on the pump? I'm not 100% sure, but I would imagine that the one that's on there is more of an intermediate acting. You wouldn't want necessarily a short acting, or it might even come with multiple in it too, depending on, because if you eat a meal, and it spikes, it might give you a short acting to reduce it shortly, but it's still, you're still gonna have to have a basal administration of a dose. And you don't wanna administer a basal insulin after a meal. So I would imagine that the, the machines would have to carry multiple. In the urgent care setting, I don't really use or work with insulin pumps, but I would imagine they would have to have a variety. But I can check on it and let you guys know. I'm not really sure, to be honest. But yeah, that's how they work. They, they monitor and administer in accordance to maintain, essentially, acting as a homeostatic mechanism to maintain your glucose within a certain set range that's set within the pump. Yeah. Does anybody know? No, I don't, I don't know exactly, but I was wondering, like, when you... I would imagine it has to have more than one type of insulin in it because you need a basal insulin, and then it, when you have a spike from a meal, you're not going to administer a spike of basal insulin because it's going to decrease their insulin, their glucose levels throughout the whole day. When what you want is you want a short-term effect during that time. But you don't want to keep pumping short-term insulin all day, so I'm assuming it has multiple types within it. And how do you decide that that person will be on the pump versus just... So, I mean, ideally, anybody on insulin is on a pump, but that's all dependent on insurance, costs, and patients' um, what it, the patients wants, right? So, like, some patients are like, I don't want to carry a machine on me all day. Other oh, patients are like, I don't want to inject myself, so it just depends on the patient. Oh, so type 1 diabetics benefit more from having an insulin pump because they need the instant the insulin all the time no matter what lifelong therapy yes. whereas type 2 a lot of them are on oral medications and when they start on insulin they'll start with just like a basal and it's just like once a day so it's easier to administer they're usually type 1 they're on very intensive insulin regimens where they're using multiple types of insulin throughout the day so to increase compliance, a pump would be a lot more beneficial for them. I mean, 
Google says, I don't know, it, it says short acting and rapid acting in short but not long acting. So I guess something like Kinolog. So it yeah, doesn't it have a rapid acting, it's just short? It's short acting and rapid acting in short but not long acting. Sometimes regular also. I would assume it's short to intermediate, but it's short depending on like the in the same You don't put that all in the same hub. If you were to give a long one or a short one, it would depend. Like one, I know, I don't know, I don't remember the top of my head, but there's one from like in the morning and then the other one like later at night. Like, but do they have, are they both medications in the same machine and it chooses which one to use throughout the day is the question. Yeah, well, I'm going to double check and I'll let you guys know either the next class or the one after. A lot of people, I've seen a bunch of people on pumps, or if they're not on the pump, they'll at least have the devices that measure the glucose, which is super helpful, because then I don't have to finger stick them. I'm just like, let me see. All right, cool. <laughs> we're good. So um, we're gonna go, we went through all the medications. We talked kind of about the indications, the contraindications, and now we're going to do that whole thing all over again, but kind of in the reference of how you would actually approach it on a patient-by-patient -patient basis. It's going to get super confusing, <laughs> um, super annoying. There's charts. And then the even more annoying part is that there's two different guidelines. Um, and we're going to go over both of them. And then we're going to talk about what you need to know and what you don't need to know and what you're going to be tested on and what you're not going to be tested on. All right? So glycemic goals, and this is for the ADA, the American Diabetes Association. Um, these are the glycemic goals. And you're usually going to be tested on A1C goals. Okay. So for the ADA, it's less than seven. For um, ACE, American Association of uh, Clinical Endocrinology, it's less than 6.5, less than or equal to 6.5. So what we said, and the way I want you guys to remember it, if the patient is healthy, young, no risk factors for hypoglycemia, you maintain a more strict control of less than 6.5. And if they are older, have a bunch of comorbidities, you go with less than seven. And if you do that, you should be okay. If they give you a specific thing, like according to the ADA, then hopefully you remembered which one's which. Right? Um, but they don't usually do that with these questions. They don't always say according to... They don't. They do that a lot with... Because um, that's the other annoying thing, too, is guidelines for screenings. So there's like the United States Preventative Task Force and then the American Association of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and they all have different guidelines on pap smears and this and that. So for that, they usually specify, according to the US PC whatever, PT whatever, which of the following, they do that. Um, but have I seen that for diabetes questions? No. And the rule that's always helped me is healthy, young, less than 6.5. Comorbidities, older, less than 7. That has done me well all the time. And it will definitely do you well in my exam, um, for sure. So. They don't usually do preprandial and postprandial glucose um, treatment guidelines, so I wouldn't concern myself too much with those. Um, but typically, fasting glucose normally is less than 100, and postprandial, within a couple hours after eating, is less than 200. That's normal. And then typically, to classify as diabetic, you would be um, a random glucose or postprandial glucose over 200 with some kind of symptoms, or 
you could have a uh, fasting glucose greater than 126, I believe is the exact number. So those are the typical guidelines and, and for, for diagnosis. And then anything between normal and diabetic is pre-diabetic or glucose, you know, like failing glucose sensitivity, whatever they want to refer to it as. So I, I would just try to remember normal and remember diabetes and then know that anything in between is impaired glucose tolerance or pre-diabetes. Okay? Um, that's more medicine. It's not going to be relevant to farm. So we're going to cover that more medicine and those specific guidelines, but I'm just letting you guys know now. Same thing with um, the A1C. The normal A1C, I think it's like 5.7. And then diabetes is over 6.5. So from 5.7 to 6.5 is impaired glucose tolerance or uh, pre-diabetes, right? So just remember the normal and abnormal and everything in between is like pre or impaired. And then the goal, if you remember that the goal is six, if the, the cutoff is 6.5 for diagnosis, that's also the treatment goal. But in patients with risk of hypoglycemia, it's less than seven, not 6.5. So according to the ADA, this is kind of the, um, and I'm not gonna test you guys on this algorithm, I'm gonna test you guys on the ACE algorithm, okay? But according to the ADA, the way that they want you to initiate therapy is relevant to the patient's A1C. So if they have an A1C less than nine, you start with monotherapy. And what's the first line treatment for monotherapy? If the A1C is greater than nine but less than 10, you do dual therapy. And if the A1C is greater than 10, you start with triple therapy, all right? So if I was you guys, what I would do is I would have a chart of all the A1C numbers that are important to remember. 5.7, which is normal. 6.5, which is the goal for young healthy patients. 7, which is the goal for patients with, that are older or risk of glycemia. Less than 9, which is the cutoff for monotherapy. 9, which is, the, and again, I wouldn't do the 9 one because we're not using this criteria, but we're, we're going to use the other one, so you would plug in those numbers, which I think they use 8 instead of 9. They use like 7.5 to 8 and then above. So I would make a chart with all the relevant A1C goals and numbers to remember and what they're associated to so you don't forget them because there's a lot of A1C measurements and why they're relevant. So that will be very helpful to you guys. Um, so anything over 10, you would start triple therapy or insulin. So monotherapy, the principal medication that you're using for monotherapy is metformin. For dual therapy, you're gonna do metformin plus any one of the other oral agents that we talked about. Um, the only real problem with uh, adding medications is which two don't you wanna combine? DPP-4s and GLPs, okay? It's another really good rule to not use two medications that cause weight gain cannot use two medications that have high risk of hypoglycemia. So if you just remember that you never use DPP-4s and GLPs together, you're gonna to be marked safe from picking the wrong combinations. And if you also remember that you don't wanna give two medications that cause high risk of hypoglycemia and medications that cause high risk of weight gain, then you're gonna be in good shape for selecting combo medications, okay? So, Triple therapy, again, you're gonna do metformin plus another agent, and there's, like, if you guys try to just memorize the list where it says metformin plus 
sulfonyl urea, TZ, you're going to go crazy. So just try to remember, metformin is first. After metformin, you add another agent that is not a combination with the DPP-4 and a GLP-1. And then what they're going to do is they're going to give you some kind of comorbidity for the patient that is going to either make one medication wrong or make one medication better. So if you just remember each medication and who they're good for and who they're contraindicated in, you'll be good to pick the combination. So don't sit here and try to memorize, oh, I could do metformin plus TZDs plus a DPP-4, but I can't do this. You can pretty much do any combination you want unless the patient doesn't allow it because of a contraindication or unless a medication is deemed better because of a comorbidity the patient has. So that's what I want you guys to focus on more because that's going to save you a lot of heartache. Um, and that's pretty much it. We're not going to go too much more crazy on this. Uh, this chart is helpful for you guys to remember because this is very important to memorize um, which insulins are part of which duration of onset of action. So when I'm telling you guys that you're going to start a patient on like a basal insulin, you need to know which ones are basal, okay? And you need to know which ones are rapid action. So I'm telling you that they need a bolus, you need to know which ones are going to be good for bolus, all right? So this chart is going to cover a lot of things that we already know. You don't need to necessarily memorize this one in particular, but if you guys are good with flowcharts, um, this is going to tell you which medications are good for patients with a risk of hypoglycemia, um, which medications are good for patients with heart failure um, or uh, cardiovascular, uh, cardiovascular disease. So if they have atherosclerotic heart disease, you're going to want to give the medicate the like when you're doing the step up therapy or you're adding medications, you're going to want to focus around GLP ones and SGLT twos because we talked about those as having cardio protective benefits. Okay, so that's really important to remember because that's going to be the type of thing you think about when you're adding agents at which combination is going to be better. So you have to know the A1C cutoffs to know how many medications to administer one, two, or three, and you need to know which medications are preferred in which subset of patients, All right? So patients that you need to minimize hypoglycemia, which means that these are going to be agents that are not going to cause high risk of hypoglycemia, these are the medications you can use. A combination of a DPP-4, a GLP-1, an SGLT-2, or a TZD. Patients who need to minimize weight gain or that you want to promote weight loss, you're going to center your treatment around GLP-1s and SGLT-2s. Patients who have financial constraints, they're going to get sulfonylureas and TZDs, which unfortunately are the ones we talked about as having the most adverse effects out of the bunch. Okay? Um, you guys do not need to memorize this whole flow chart. This is just to give you uh, an idea of which medications are preferred and which type of patients. So my favorite chart to go over that is going to be at the end now. Whenever you guys are going to reassess efficacy of treatment, usually you're going to do it in three-month intervals. So you're going to recheck patients' A1Cs around every three months, and then if they have not responded at that point, that's when you would consider um, making a change in treatment. So if you have a patient who has an A1C of, um, I don't know, let's say 7.5, they're going to be on what kind of therapy? Monotherapy, right? 
Initial medication is going to be what? Metformin. All right. You check their uh, A1C in three months, and it's uh, six, six. Right. Then the next step is what? Chill. Right. Nothing. If it's uh, if it's seven or let's say six point nine, the next step is what? Depends on what scale we're using, right? That the patient's young and healthy and doesn't have any comorbidities and you want to bring it up to 6.5, your next step is going to be what? Or get them to the maximally tolerated dose of metformin. Because that's the other thing. We're not testing on dosing, but if one of the options is increase to maximally tolerated dose, you can do that too. So you don't have to add on an agent until you've maximized the dosing of their current medication. So you can max them out on their metformin dose before adding on another agent. If you want to add on another agent, which one are you going to use? It depends on, the it depends on what uh, what issues, issues the patient has, right? So pretty much any, right? You can start any. But if the patient has heart disease, and you want one with cardiovascular so GLP-1. GLP-1 and SGLT-2. I heard them both. And you want to avoid TZD, right? So this this is the kind of way you want to stratify the questions. And then if they tell you that they're being assessed in less than three months, then the answer is going to be to wait for three months to reassess, right? So don't mess that up, right? Is the mono, dual, and triple therapy for type 2? Yes. In type 1, you're not using any of those agents. Yep. Okay. Type 1, you're using insulin. Insulin. So you do want to know the percentages on that previous slide about mono, not this one. We're coming to another one now that you're going to use. So this one is 2017 ADA guidelines, but there's 2019 ACE guidelines, which I think are better. Um, so this we already talked about. So patients with atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and pagliflozin, which is a what? That's all. SGLT2 or liraglutide, which is a GLP. The GLPs, the GUI laundry pods, right? Yeah. yeah. Liraglutide are, are, should be considered because they have been shown to reduce cardiovascular mortality. All right? So we already talked about that. So this is going to be the guidelines that I want you guys to follow that I'm going to test you on in terms of what percentages you need to know. Um, for treatment, okay? So, for this one, you see how it says, for patients without concurrent or serious illness and low hypoglycemic risk, less than 6.5. Is this the chart that you like? Yes. So, for patients less than 6.5 uh, that are healthy and don't have high risk of uh, hypoglycemia, the goal is going to be less than 6.5. And for patients who um, are do have a high risk, it's going to be over 6.5, but less than 7, okay? Less than 7. So the entry A1C for monotherapy is going to be less than 7.5. So the other one, the other guidelines wanted you to start, they said less than 9 was monotherapy, right? And then over 9 was dual therapy and over 10 was triple therapy. This one is a lot more stringent. So you're going to do monotherapy less than 7.5, and 
And then greater than 7.5 but less than 9, you could do dual or triple therapy. And then over 9, with symptoms, you do insulin. So maybe I didn't catch it. When would you use this versus that? You're, they're two completely different guidelines that you can follow at your own discretion. This is going to be the one I'm testing you on and the one that I think you're probably going to be tested on more often. Yeah. So follow this one. Follow this one, yes. I just want you guys to be aware because if you're working with a provider that is like, oh, no, I don't care, Let's, we're not going to treat them because they're less than nine, you know they're just using a different criteria for treatment. So monotherapy, you start with what? Metformin. If they have a contraindication to metformin, like what? Kidney problems. Okay. Then you're going to start them on a another medication that you pick depending on their on the right thing that works for them, right? Um, what works best for the patient? Right. So if the patient's obese and you want to focus on weight loss, you're going to pick a medication that causes weight loss, like GLP one. GLP one. A GLP one is the main one. If they have cardiovascular disease, you're going to pick a medication that helps with cardiovascular disease, like. Again, specifically liraglutide, specifically empagliflozin. But yes, an SGLT2 or a GLP-1. But within those classes, those two medications, liraglutide and empagliflozin, are the ones that you want to focus on for cardioprotective benefits. All right? So yes, but preferably a GLP-1 or an SGLT-2 is going to be part of the treatment because they are preferred in almost every patient for one reason or another because they have cardioprotective benefits and most of these patients have other cardiovascular risk factors. If the patients are old or taking multiple medications that affect, uh, you know, for, for controlling their blood glucose, you want to avoid medications and do what? If patients who are older or are taking like multiple medications, you want to avoid picking another medication that does what? That causes risk of hypoglycemia. And the main one we talked about for high risk of hypoglycemia is what? Well, that one doesn't have a. That one has actually not a huge risk of hypoglycemia. That one causes a lot of UTIs. The SGLT2 causes a lot of UTIs. It doesn't cause hypoglycemia. Hypoglycemia was a huge side effect of sulfonylureas. Okay. I didn't hear you. I'm sorry. Yeah, say it with your chest. Thank you, Michelle. So, so sulfonylureas have a high risk of, of hypoglycemia, so you want to avoid them in patients that are at risk for hypoglycemia. Insulin also causes hypoglycemia, and especially if you're using like short-acting insulin, it can cause short-term hypoglycemic episodes. So pairing somebody with insulin with a sulfonylurea is rough and not ideal. So that patients are directly stimulated the secretion of insulin is what you're talking about. GLP-1s don't have a huge risk because GLP-1s indirectly increase insulin production and so do DPP-4s, but they don't have as high of a risk. But sulfonylureas is direct. direct and it has a huge risk of hypoglycemia. And so does just the meglinotype. Yeah. It should also have hypoglycemic risk. Let's see. Let's confirm. It does.
Uh, let me go back to that. I just want to confirm before saying something wrong. Yeah, it has a risk of hypoglycemia. So anything that directly stimulates or or direct insulin is going to have a high risk of hypoglycemia. If the A1C is over 7.5, but less than 9, so in that range, you're going to start them on dual therapy. And if they're not responding to dual therapy, then you move to triple therapy. And we've already talked about dual and triple therapy and how to assess the agents. That's going to require a lot of memorization on your part as to what medications are preferred in what patients. And once you get that, you will never get those questions wrong. What you need to memorize is when when to do mono, when to do dual, and when to do triple. If they're coming in already, the first time you evaluate them with an A1C over 9, and they are not symptomatic, and symptomatic is what? Polyuria, polydysia, polyphagia, recurrent infections, poor wound healing, micro or macrovascular complications of diabetes. Those, yes, neuropathies, vision loss, renal insufficiency, they have any of those things, they are symptomatic, and you go straight to insulin. If they do not have those things, then you can decide to start them on dual therapy or triple therapy at your discretion, depending on how aggressive you want to be. You said the, the vessel for the Empagliflozin and liraglutide. Well, empagliflozin is not a GLP, it's an SGLT2. And before we do dual therapy, we can try to maximize Before you do move to dual therapy, you would want to maximize monotherapy, yes. Yeah. Before adding an agent, you would prefer reaching the maximally tolerated dose of the initial agent. Can you therapy Yes. Yeah, you're better increasing the dose of a current medication than adding a new one. Yes. Insulin dosing. I am not going to test you guys on insulin dosing. Um... The pants is not going to test you guys on insulin dosing. Um, but you will have to insulin dose patients. And when you go to do that, you're going to have to look it up. I still look up insulin dosing all the time because I don't prescribe insulin often. But when I have to, which I usually don't, I'm looking it up all the time because you don't want to mess up with insulin dosing. So, And if you do prescribe insulin all the time, you're going to get really good with it really quick. Somebody had a question? Where do you look it up? Yeah. Up to date? Or these guidelines? These guidelines. No. I do have apps on my phone, but um, I have up to date app on my phone, which is what I use. But I use it on the computer usually because if I'm at work, I have it on the computer. Um, but these guidelines specifically are really, really good. And I think up to date has the same guidelines because I think they use this, this algorithm. Um, so usually when you start a patient who's a type 2 diabetic on insulin, you're going to start them on a basal insulin. So you keep them on, on, on the oral agent, and then you add the basal insulin. Uh, usually, so like let's say you had a patient, um, and their A1C was, uh, let's say, 9. And then you started them on dual therapy with metformin and a GLP, and that didn't work. So you did a triple therapy with metformin, a GLP, and then it was very expensive, so you did a sulfonylurea. So now the patient's on a sulfonylurea, a GLP, and a metformin. And their A1C is still not at goal. And it's still high. And you've maximally tolerated all the medications that they're on. 
at that point, you would consider either switching the sulfonylurea to another medication like an SGLT2 or moving them to insulin. When you move them to insulin, you want to be careful because if they're on a sulfonylurea, they have a risk of hypoglycemia, they're on three medications, and insulin has a risk of hypoglycemia. So you can discontinue two medications, keep them on metformin, which is usually what they'll do. Keep them on metformin and add insulin, and add a basal insulin. And the basal insulin dose is weight-based and A1C-based. So less than 8%, 0.1 to 0.2 units per kilogram, and if it's over 8, 0.2 to 0.3 units per kilogram. And the basal insulin is usually enough to maintain their glycemic control. Of course, you're routinely monitoring them every three months or every year, depending on how well controlled the patient is. If you've already had them controlled, that's fine. And then over time, you may need to either increase the basal dose, or if you're getting pretty high on the basal dose, you may need to do bolus therapy or prandial control, which is what the second option is. Okay? So I don't need you guys to remember less than 8%. You're doing 0.1 units to 0.2 units. This is more for you guys to have a general idea of how the medications are dosed. It's dosed on units per weight depending on their A1C. How frequent should The basal is once a day. Yeah, usually once a day. The, the prandial control depends on the patient. Sometimes you might say, hey, take it just with the largest meal of the day. If that's not working, you may say, hey, take it before each meal of the day. It just depends on the patient. And there's no real right or wrong way to do this. The only wrong way to do it is the way that causes hypoglycemia and kills your patient. You're better off starting slow and having them be a little bit hyperglycemic and then checking up on them in three months and increasing the dose than starting too aggressively and causing a hypoglycemic event. So usually, usually if they're on insulin, it's because, like it's, it's a progressive disease. So usually their endogenous production of insulin gets worse, not better. So usually once you start them on insulin, they're antistated. Usually. There's very few times where unless the patient is making extreme lifestyle modifications and their sensitivity to insulin is improving and they're becoming less resistant, then you may be able to decrease. But again, a lot of times you'll either be reducing their basal dose or you'll be reducing their prandial control like with, with, the, with the meals. Usually you're not removing insulin from somebody's treatment regimen. Usually. It is not common. You said insulin has more side effects than for reason? No, insulin does, insulin's main side effects are hypoglycemia. It causes weight gain. It does cause weight gain. And then um, it also causes at the site of injection. Well, they actually test on this. I don't know if I've put this in any of my slides. I may have. I don't remember now. But they do test on this. It causes uh, like fat atrophy in the injection site. So it, that's why they tell the patients to move around the site they injected in. Because if you inject it in the same site every time, it can start causing breakdown of the fat and it can lead like, to some disfiguring effects. But usually it's mitigated by injecting. I did put it? Okay, cool. I just didn't talk about it. My bad. Thanks for the question. I remember. I know this is completely different of medications, but PSK-90 inhibitors are also injected in the sites. Yes. Is that for the same reason? Yes. So, yeah, make sure you note that side effect. The light, it's called lipodystrophy. 
they do test on that. It's not as common now. It, it was more common in formulations they used to use. Like even now, if you inject it in the same site, it usually doesn't cause it. But they still recommend moving around to reduce the risk. But it was mainly due to the type of insulins that they were using in the past that caused it. It doesn't happen as commonly now. And then this chart is going to be one of the things that you use the most to study where studying for my exam. Um, it has every medication class, and it tells you all the things I want you to know. The risk of hypoglycemia, weight loss or weight gain, renal um, in, uh, effects, GI effects, cardiovascular effects, effects on the bone, and that's pretty much it. Ketoacidosis, we're going to talk about that treatment in medicine, so I wouldn't want you to worry, to worry too much about it. But this chart tells you every medication and where they stand on the scale. So if you know this chart very well, if there's no reason, if you know this chart well, and you know the indications for when to start mono dual therapy based on the A1C, you should not have any issues getting any questions on the exam. My exam, the pants, anywhere. All right, so do you guys have any questions? Okay, there are some slides that weren't shown here that are in the lecture that you don't see them on the screen. If I minimize, you'll see them. Um, these, but they're essentially just charts that go over the medications and show you everything we talked about in a different format, which may or may not be beneficial to you, but I'm not gonna go over them because we already went over that. You guys have any questions? Cool, so this, um, guys, stop talking up for a second. This, this lecture was supposed to be uh, two, two lectures. So we, it literally cut off an entire lecture. So um, next class, I want to do obesity, which is really short, it's tiny. Okay. And then after that, we're just going to do a bunch of questions. Okay. Um, and then next week, we're probably going to have a class that can either be like eliminated or that we can do more questions. More questions. More questions. More questions. Yeah. <laughs> More questions. More questions. <laughs> 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 <laughs>